0: This is the number one showbiz podcast. It's talk for two. Here's your host, Matt Bailey. Thank you, Gary, and welcome back, everybody, to our Washington, D.C. premiere week. It is such a thrill to be back with you on this election night, Tuesday, November 3rd. Now, before we get going, we're not doing an election-themed episode. This is our episode with a broadcast legend. Back in April, we had Larry King. We've had Bob Barker on this program. You know that I always get nervous whenever I have a broadcast legend on this program because they have done what I do. You know, not really what I do. This is a modern form of what they've done. But they're the reasons I do what I do. And they're the reasons I try to mold this podcast into something of broadcast quality. But I got to tell you, Joan London could not have put me at more ease. It was so much fun talking to her about her new book, Why Did I Come Into This Room? Her new book focuses on aging, which has been her focus since kind of stepping back from network television. She's done a lot of health and lifestyle type programming, written a lot of health and lifestyle books. This new Why Did I Come Into the Room book is a look at aging gracefully with humor and irreverence. And it is just such a funny read. It is aimed at women, but I think anybody will get a really good kick out of it and learn something, too. And like I said, we also talked about her career, talked about Good Morning America, talked about all the fun stuff she's done, and it delved into a little bit of a serious conversation, especially one that, even though we're not getting political today, a conversation that has been circling the larger conversation around the election, which is what is happening to the media. You know, you don't see a reporter out in the field doing all of the awesome things that she got to do on GMA back in the day. It's completely changed, and she really doesn't hold back on her feelings about what's happened to the media and whether or not she would go back into broadcast television, network television in the current landscape. So I'm just going to shut up, and I'm going to say, here now, Our interview, spent a half hour just of almost pure escapism. We do get into that serious little bit, but just a half hour of joy with Joan London. Joan London, welcome to Talk for Two. How are you today?
1: I am terrific. Good to be with you.
0: Well, it is so good to be with you. Why did I walk into this room? Excellent book. Excellent title. You know, I'm 26. And I wonder that a lot, too, sometimes. So, you know, this book really, really appeals to all ages. I know it's aimed at seniors, and it's about aging gracefully. What prompted you to write this book, and and why now?
1: Well, first of all, when you walk into a room and you can't remember why you did it, and you're in your 20s, you don't really think that much of it. But if you're in your 50s or 60s, the first thing you think of is oh my gosh is this the start of something bad you know you immediately think that you know it's the beginning of dementia and quite honestly it's usually not it's just age appropriate forgetfulness mm-hmm. and you know i mean i i directed this at probably people I'd, I'll say over 50. Um, but interestingly, it doesn't make any difference whether it's a woman in her 40s, 60s, 70s. They all say the same thing. Oh, my God, you are talking just to me. All those things happen to me. And that's kind of the point why I wanted to write the book. I just felt that we all and, you know, we age differently than men because of estrogen. Mm-hmm. And that that, you know, that fall in the estrogen level is what creates all of the, the myriad of of I was going to say problems, but kind of symptoms that we all, you know, have as we age. Sure. Um, but the thing is, is that when you don't talk about these things, and these things shouldn't be taboo subjects. I mean, we overshare everything on Facebook these days. Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't we on Instagram? So you know, these things shouldn't be taboo, and yet they kind of have been. And so I just wanted. I feel that when women experience these things alone. And they're not out there on the table, you know, for all of us to discuss. That what happens is that we feel s- something's going wrong with us. Mm-hmm. We're breaking down. Is something, you know, what's wrong with me? And you tend to feel, I don't know, less appealing, less sexy. Uh, and then you go down that path, and pretty soon you're at less relevant. And that's when you start even maybe limiting your own. Um, ideas about what opportunities you can really accept it's just a bad path to go down so I wanted to just throw it all out there on the table and if you've read the book you know I did (laughs) yes you did
0: you go through everything my gosh this is a textbook for how to truly truly age gracefully accept it and embrace it, and live with it, and have fun with it, too, you know? the, the Yeah, because we don't have a choice. <laughs> no, no, you don't. Now, you said a word in there that I absolutely love, I want to dig into for a second, taboo. That it, it's yeah. taboo to talk about aging, I think, for men and women. I mean, the book is obviously geared towards women, but for men and women, the idea of, like, you know, bags under your eyes and wrinkles and different things. I know a 27-year-old wants to get Botox because he has one line on his forehead, and I'm like, dude, (laughs) no, 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 no. Why why is this this taboo? Why is this not societally accepted to talk about and really be a community and support one another through the aging process?
1: Well, you know, I think we're definitely in a youth-obsessed culture, but it's more than that. Life today is just really, really different than 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Back like when when my mom, I think about it like in 1930, she was a young woman, you know, going out to, you know, find her place in the world. Well, in 1930 in this country, the um, average age that you would die is 59. Wow. I mean, just think of that. But that, then by like, you know, it kept going up today. It's 81 for women. And seventy-eight for men. Uh, of course, my husband always says the reason why men die before their wives is because they want to. <laughs> uh, that's why I'm the public speaker and he's not. Yep. Um, but you know, it's it's just that it's a different world today. You know, forever you would go into Party City and all the fifty-year-old birthday things would be over the hill, and they finally—I was ready to go out and pick it in front of that place. I'll tell you <laughs> because. 50 is not over the hill anymore. People are peaking at 50. And just think about 60s. I mean, it used to be, I think about the, the television show, The Golden Girls. Like, the woman was on there, I think it was Maude with a silver hair. She was only 50 on that show. Yeah, Like, that's not reality today. You know, everyone I know, every woman I know that is that is in her 60s, like, you know, she'll say, gee, I'll meet you for lunch, but I got to go to my Pilates class first and then I've got to go. I mean, we're we're different in today's world. We stay more engaged in life. We're more full of vitality. Uh, We probably take better care of ourselves because, you know, working out became chic. And even eating healthier became kind of the thing to do. But it's all added to our longevity and to our state of health in those later years. Because, I mean, do we really want to live longer if we're not going to be
0: healthy? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that's exactly right. So what is your secrets? I know you go into some things in the book. But, I mean, I'm talking to you. And if you don't mind my saying, because we're talking candidly about aging, you're you're 70. And you, I know. You wear in it so reality, well. some other reality.
1: You, it's in some other virtual reality, Matt. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you wear it so well. I have to know, What are your secrets? How are you taking, uh, uh, for lack of a better phrase, getting up there in age, aging gracefully? How are you handling it emotionally, physically? What are you doing to stay well?
1: Well, I have to tell you that that the birthday day of seventy kind of sucked. Just because, <laughs> just because, like when I mean, when I grew up as a little girl, I thought that sixty was kind of like the end, you know, yeah. or at least the beginning <laughs> of the end. And now here I am. And I think, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm so active and I'm fit and, you know, I take great care of my skin. I do all the things that one should do in order to, you know, staying, looking as, you know, vibrant and young as possible. But, um, I think part of it really, Matt is your mindset, mm-hmm. you know, we don't realize it, but we grew up in a time when we kept hearing, you know, hours and hours and hours, which all become those recordings that are in the back of your head where we heard, Oh, you know, go a little slower. You know, aunt Hilda can't keep up. She's older now. Go help (laughs) uncle Charlie out of his chair. He's retired, you know, and that's how we grew up. And therefore there is this kind of idea that as you age, you are going to deteriorate and decline. And if you don't kind of buck that thinking, it can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And you can just start feeling like you can't um, keep living your life as normal and that you can't be open to opportunities and that you can't be, um, you can't still go to, like I go to hip-hop class. I don't go there because I think I'm a good dancer. I go there because it's, it's helping my brain. <laughs> <laughs> this believe me, every year when dancing with the stars calls, I'm smart enough to say no. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, you Thank should... goodness. Hey, they got it, it really is a mindset, I think. Your attitude really, you know, your thoughts create your reality. Mm-hmm. And so I think that mindset is incredibly important.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking of mindset, now this might make for an interesting transition, but I want to talk about, because... I grew up now. I'll admit I kind of came to the show a couple years after you had departed. But I grew up watching and loving Good Morning America. You weren't there anymore, but Charlie Gibson was there. And, and that was appointment viewing, especially when I would stay with my grandparents. They loved their morning TV. And now I'm mm-hmm. in talk. So it's it's a full full circle yeah. moment. But speaking of mindset, you did so many wild, crazy, fantastic, risk-taking things on that show. <laughs> I mean, yeah. if if it were today, your clips would go viral, as they say. What? Well, you know,
1: I started them on that show. Yeah. Like I I, I took nine Gs with the Thunderbirds and an F eighteen mm-hmm. on that show. And by the way, I also herniated my C five C six disc, which I later Yikes. in later years had spinal surgery to correct. Yeah. But that's where it started. And then um, ABC gave me a prime time opportunity. And they said, but don't ask to do another sit-down interview show because there were already, you know, so many people. Barbara Walters, Diane Sawyer, everybody was doing those. And I said, oh, I don't want to do a sit-down interview, the Celebrity Series. That's boring to me. Mm -hmm. I want to do a show where I go behind the scenes of a profession. But just not to point my camera at it, I want to be it. I want to do it. So – I'm trying to remember the name. There used to be a guy a long, long, long time ago that used to do this. He was like a Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders. So they were happy to hear that I was going to do a different kind of show. But the show was really um, intensive to shoot because most of the things I wanted to do required, you know, a week of training. But – I was the only one that did a show like that. I don't think anybody else was willing to go through what I went through. So, you know, I started out, uh, I went on a, uh, uh, I flew in an F7, an F16 and landed on uh, the Eisenhower aircraft carrier. Yep. And as soon as I did that one, I started getting the calls from different um, branches of the armed forces, the special forces would call and say, we're doing high mountain, um, high, high, uh, altitude training with, with, uh, you know, do you want to come and take part in it? And then the Navy would call and say, we're going to take the Island of Viejas with, um, live gunfire and explosives. And we're going to, uh, we're going to go out into, in a submarine and deploy from the submarine and take the Island. Do you want to go? I, yes, I want to go. I mean, if you want to take a page from the Joan London playbook, it is. Whenever anyone asks you if you want to do something or if you can do something, Mm -hmm. just say yes. Yeah. And then, and then figure out how to do it. So I started doing all of those shows and it was actually a show of mine called Behind Closed Doors. Yes. So that it kind of started on GMA and then it went to the primetime show. And when I left, I left ABC. I took the show to the A&E network and did it on the A&E for the next couple of years, and it was my ticket to adventure. And my producers would call me up, and they would say, "All right, um, Special Forces are going to be doing uh, desert training. Are you willing to like, you know, eat?" Uh, a caterpillar or because <laughs> you're gonna be asked to do some funky stuff on this thing. But I said yes to everything. I only said no to one one show. <laughs> what was that? They wanted they wanted to know if I would you know the cliff divers in Acapulco? Oh yeah. Yeah. They call and asked me if I'd do that and I said no. That's no. I, I know enough that if you hit that water, it's like hitting cement. <laughs> I'm not doing that. That was the only one. And the one that they said they were surprised the most about was when they called me up and asked me if I would be a Las Vegas showgirl and dance with uh, the Jubilee. And I said, yes. And then, of course, my fitness trainer said, do you know how hard that is? Yeah, those headpieces are heavy. Oh, my God. Fifteen pounds of jewelry from my arms and the headpiece. And you're in high heels And those girls have such long legs that you really have to strut your stuff. Otherwise, they'll run right over you. And that was probably, you know, I've jumped with the Golden Knights from 15,000 feet. I I mean, I've blown up tanks with other, you know, I've done crazy things. But the scariest thing I ever did was trying to be a Las Vegas showgirl.
0: I love that. I have to flip the script and ask. What's one you wanted to do? What's one adventure you wanted to do that it just logistically, for whatever reason, it it didn't work out? There has to be one, right?
1: We always tried to get into Fort Knox. (laughs) (laughs) And every time we would all go to the Pentagon, my producers and me, my producers would call and say, put on that navy blue suit with a short skirt and wear your blue high heels. We're going to the Pentagon. (laughs) And we went there because we would negotiate all these we would go to the Pentagon to negotiate every story, and we always tried to get into Fort Knox. And my producer looked at him, look at the guy, and said, one of the heads of the treasury, you don't really have any gold in there, do you? <laughs> <laughs> That's why you won't let us in, because it's really not there. <laughs> um, but we never would; they never would uh, open it up to us. Did you get close? They let us into the treasury where they make money. Mm. We got into that, but they wouldn't let us into the, the fault where. Supposedly, all
0: the gold is. <laughs> <laughs> did you get close? I mean, did they ever, for a second, consider it? No, or, they didn't. They wow. didn't. They
1: didn't blink. Wow. I uh, never bought that one. But we got almost. We got. You know, after a while, they were calling me, and I actually got awarded the highest honor the armed forces gives to a civilian. Yes. And the reason why uh, the distinguished uh, civilian honor was they said I was the best recruiting. um, They'd never done any kind of recruiting that ever, ever topped what I did on the air. Because what I did is I showed you what it was really like Mm -hmm. to be on an aircraft carrier, to be on a submarine, to fly in an F-18, to fly, um, you know, at 85,000 feet in a U-2 spy plane. Uh, that was the only time we, I was ever in danger, by the way. I was never... It was always perceived danger. But that flight, um, we we uh, had problems in the plane. And as we came back down through the clouds, and we almost had to make a, a real emergency landing. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time that that I could have been in real danger. But again, I had trained for it, so theoretically I would have been okay but fortunately we didn't have to find that out
0: that's yeah that's great that's that's great I have to ask you've had such a varied career in media and I don't want to get into politics I know you don't either but when you look at the media today compared to what you were doing Uh. what do you think because it's just it's so divisive now and it's it's not fun Like you were doing. It is
1: not fun. I wouldn't want to be back on that show now at all. You know, when when Charlie and I would sit and do um, a segment, a debate, Mm -hmm. I remember sitting with Jerry Garcia and Tipper Gore, and Tipper Gore was arguing for record labeling, and Jerry Garcia, of course, was against it. And at the end of an interview like that, our goal was that you would not know which side we were on Mm -hmm. that was our our challenge our task and our goal was never to know what our opinion was and today and i get called up to do interviews on in a myriad of different i spend a lot of time doing interviews Mm -hmm. and they always want you to have an opinion and that's that wasn't journalism to me right i report i report facts i do interviews but I'm not supposed to be out there giving you my opinion. So, um, you know, it's a lot of it is. In fact, I don't know if you saw it in all of my um, information, but I'm the ambassador for the Media Wise for Seniors campaign. Yes. And it's put out by the Pointer Institute, and the whole thing is about it's an online free online course that you can do on Facebook um, because that's where most of the seniors are. Uh, (laughs) So that you can identify fact from fiction and fact from opinion. Mm -hmm. And, of course, these days, fact from disinformation, deliberate misinformation. And it's a great course. And, I mean, I've lived my whole life as a journalist, and I learned from the course. That's, Um,
0: you know. Yeah. The the kind of the hardest. It's sad. It is. It's because. But it's also the flip side of that, too, is we have so much technology. I'm talking to you in a den in my apartment in Washington, D.C., where (laughs) I have a bunch of equipment around me that, like, you know, when I was little watching Good Morning America, watching your hits, I, I never imagined I could do this much less from my own room. So the flip side of that is we could take inspiration and hopefully this new generation can usher in a different fresher approach to media. The hardest question I'll ask you here, because I want to get a real journalist's opinion on this, and if you don't want to answer this, I don't do gotcha. But Dan Rather said something very interesting. He said, and he put it on Facebook, I'm paraphrasing, he said, these are unprecedented times, and it's incumbent upon the press to frame it as such. Do you think it's the, the job of journalists to put an era into context? Or is it just put out the facts and let the Let the seniors, let the public at large have their own context.
1: Well, it is their job to put out the facts. If it's put into the right context, in other words, if it's labeled as, you know, subjective opinion, Mm -hmm. then, I mean, there are programs, you know, you can watch programs that you watch them for that person's um, subjective, any way you look at it, subjective opinion about and putting putting a framework or as you said putting it into context as an era so i think there's room for both unfortunately i feel that they've been mixed and it's left people saying wait a minute is this opinion or is this fact and that's where i think the media is you know in trouble today Mm -hmm. um it it's really saddens me because and and i personally I really seriously personally believe that the major networks, um, you know, ABC, NBC, CBS, like the major networks, nightly news, I think it is the facts. I don't think that they are. I think that they earnestly try not to be subjective.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: But and then you have opinion networks that are truly and they don't they don't try to present themselves as anything else. But an opinion network. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know it's it's just a very different day. And unfortunately, it's just, you know, sowed um, a mistrust uh, of the public. and And that's to me very dangerous because we need freedom of speech. We need, you know, the great thing about um, all the iPhones on what cell phones around the world is that people can't get away with atrocities in some far corner of the earth. It will get, you know, outed and we'll all know about it. And hopefully then the world will take measures to make sure it doesn't happen. On the other end of the spectrum, there's this sense of urgency to be the first one on the air or to just take it up a notch. So you I don't think that that is good for news. I'll never forget, Matt, when um, I was at Eyewitness News in New York. This would have been maybe the late 70s. Uh, we had always done everything on film. So, you know, you'd go out with your camera crew. There'd be, you know, we worked under really the the um, union rules of even like a movie. So you had a lighting man, a sound man, and, a, uh, and a, a photographer. And you would come back and you'd be able to sit and think about where you just were. Think about what the people had just told you think about your impression of the story while your film was being developed. And then it would come time to go to it and with a plan and edit it. Mm-hmm. And then we got our first mobile unit. <laughs> mm-hmm. wow. And I remember going out to Long Island in this mobile unit. We got to the a scene of a story. They threw up the satellite dish. I got out of the truck, put my earpiece in, and they were throwing to me like I had not had a chance to ask questions and to really understand fully what was. I had just read the wire copy on it and I thought this is not the way news is supposed to be. <laughs> and, wow. you know, that that was when we were making that transition from film to video and then to live television and. Um, so you know, needless to say, I've been there long enough to have seen it, it all kind of transpire. And you know, these days, well, I'm on both sides. I mean, I guess you know that I'm hosting a a show now, Second Opinion, yes. with Joan London. Yes. And I mean, I love doing that. It's with PBS. It's no BS. I'm on the set with another doctor all all the time. Because we're discussing health issues, by the way, including coronaviruses. On my second show, I had Anthony Fauci, and but at the same time, we have two other physicians watching, listening in real time, making sure that everything we say is on point and is, and is correct. Mm-hmm. The, the great- I mean, that's uh, that was just like it was. When I got, you know, we did it in a studio up in Rochester um, and there was just like 15 people there to pull this off. And the rest of the station was like silent. It was so bizarre to be in a walk in a newsroom and there's no people and nothing, nothing happening. It was eerie. Um, but we had to all go in with SAG COVID rules, you know, with yeah. negative tests and everything and masks. Um, but that was so refreshing.
0: Yeah. You know. It's that, and that's the way to do it, because I said, so I work in cable news, I won't name the network on here, but I've always said, and I've said this to my superiors and to people I've just talked to, the saddest thing about this pandemic is that the coverage started out partisan, not medicine. And so you had people that really loved the president, or really loved Dr. Fauci, or really loved the other side in an election year, and the journalism in it got lost. So I, th- I agree. Yeah, I love that you're doing that. And I ha- I will I did not know about Second Opinion, but I will check that out because that seems PBS seems to really shoot straight down the line on those things. And that's a health program
1: that's been on the PBS stations nationally for 16 years. Yes, this is its this is its 17th season. And I took over and that and they now call it Second Opinion with Joan London. Those shows we just shot our first 10 shows and they start airing in um January, um, but I also just got through doing uh, the first, what, I guess, eight episodes of a podcast. Oh, wow. um, it, it's called Caring for Tomorrow, and it's all about the future of healthcare. and I'm doing it for the Washington Post, mm-hmm. um, and our partner is the Cleveland Health Clinic, so we shot them all at Cleveland Health Clinic, and but we had um, experts from outside Cleveland Clinic as well. But talking about how medicine is going to change and the delivery of of healthcare is going to change, and how telehealth will disrupt the healthcare industry the way Amazon disrupted the retail industry. Um, so those of, I mean, it's interesting that. And then I've got the you know media wise for seniors. Fortunately for me, all these different programs and campaigns that I'm working on are all very much kind of entrenched in the way journalism used to be, Um, you know, and, you know, there's, we've talked about some of the reasons why it's slipped away, but that's a slippery slope, you know, Um, getting away from just the facts. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. It really is, and it could, and I think it's led to the political discourse that we have right now. But that's a, yeah. another conversation for another day. Let's <laughs> wrap by talking about this book again. Really great, really well written, really easy read. Now, you started out in journal. I guess we'll we'll end with this. We've talked a lot today about journalism, and then some of the lifestyle things you did in media, and now you're writing books about various sections of lifestyle. Have you always been have you always considered yourself a lifestyle journalist? I mean, you've interviewed presidents and first ladies. No, not a lifestyle journalist. I've always been just a plain journalist. Sure. I've
1: covered five presidents, of all course. the inaugurations and however, I always had this passion for health and wellness. And it's I think it's really cuz my dad was a doctor. Mm-hmm. He was a cancer surgeon. You know, and everyone would stop us everywhere we would go and they'd hug him and you know, thank him for saving, you know, their spouse's life. And I mean, I just always thought that would be the best thing in the world to be. Um, but then I went to work in a hospital right before my first semester in college. That summer I worked and I found out really quick shots and scalpels and stitches. <laughs> they were not going to be part of my future. Yeah. So I majored in psychology, which is probably a good thing for becoming an interviewer. But there was always this this passion, this for health and wellness. I always used to hog all the health stories on GMA. Yep. And when I left GMA, I started a website. And believe it or not, Charlie and I, while we were there, never had laptops. There was right. no Google. There was there. So I started a website, and they said, well, "What are we going to call it?" Well, John Lennon's Healthy Living, of course. Mm-hmm it just rolled off my tongue and and I found over time because I remember my agent said to me as I was leaving GMA your or my my attorney said your biggest challenge is going forward is going to be knowing what to say no to and he was right you can't be everything to everybody mm-hmm. if you if you really go with what really matters to you and where you really feel that you can kind of you know, make your mark in the world. And my lane was health and wellness and boomers and seniors and, you know, it became breast cancer because I was diagnosed with it. Yes. But by, by discerning where I wanted to be able to have an effect with the public, it really um, made my career much easier because once you start doing things and kind of in that lane, more comes to you. And now, I I don't get the oddball um, offers as much anymore. (laughs) I still get those Dancing with the Stars every year. Yeah. (laughs) But I don't get the other oddball ones because people know what I'm about. And they know what my passion is. They know where I want to make a difference. And that is really, you know, if I ever gave advice to any young person, I mean, that's really um, the advice I would give. So – you know, I don't really necessarily know if I would call what I do today lifestyle necessarily. Sure. It's more health and wellness. I knew when I was starting this book, you know, it's my tenth book.
0: Yes, it is.
1: And um, and I knew I wanted to talk about this, and I knew it needed to be put out there in the open, and that I have this platform where I could just open up this conversation to a lot of women all across the country. Um, and then I knew I had to do it with a sense of humor like you can't talk about leaky bladders without being funny you know <laughs> and I wasn't really that sure of myself that I could do that because that's something that ha- I hadn't really utilized a sense of humor in any big way in any of my previous books so I get I think that was a thing that that um I was the most uh concerned about as I sat down and started writing this but you know what as soon as I started doing the research like I would find myself laughing sometimes and I'd say okay so tell the whole story my husband would (laughs) walk through my husband would walk through and he'd say because you have to walk through my office to get into the master bedroom he'd say what are you working on today I'd say leaky bladders he said well but you can't call it that (laughs) I said actually the name of that the title is." I laughed so hard, tears rolled down my leg. He said, you can't say that. <laughs> I said, yep. wait till you get to the last chapter. That chapter is, I want to be created. It's my last chance for a smoking hot body. He <laughs> was like, he was so concerned that I of how this was going to be taken. But everyone has loved it's, that yeah. it's done in a fun, we're all in this together. It's going to happen to you. So let's just talk about it. <laughs>
0: Ms. London, thank you so very, very much. It was a true joy and a pleasure to talk to you. Like I said, talking to broadcast legends are my absolute favorite thing to do on this show there because they scare the heck out of me. But I feel like I come away learning something from that conversation. It's always self-indulgent, but I really appreciate your time. Thank you so very much. And that is it for us today. Tomorrow on Talk for Two, or if you just scroll down, if you're already listening to this, we will have Sean Spicer with us. Don't crucify me. It's a great conversation. We're not, like I said, we don't get terribly political. Again, it's actually more talking about the media, so a little bit of a theme. Like I said, that is it for us today. Remember, you can follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Talk42, on Instagram at talk for two Pod, and be sure to check out the mothership, T-A-L-K-F-O-R-T-W-O.com. Signing off, I'm Matt Bailey, reminding everyone out there to keep talking for two. You can hear more show business interviews with the stars at talkfor2.com.